Welcome to In the Envelope, a podcast from Backstage, the number one resource for actors and talent seekers. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage, and I'm here to guide you through every aspect of the entertainment industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. These intimate, inspirational conversations with today's most award-worthy film, television, and theater artists provide you, dear listener, advice on how to live the creative life, personal stories of success and failure alike, and maybe, just maybe, a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope. You didn't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I want to be an actor. You've made an investment in yourself. If you have done that and you've gotten yourself that far along, don't let anybody tell you no. Don't be dissuaded by the trauma of being told no. Welcome backstage, listeners, to another episode of In the Envelope. I am joined by a very special guest today, uh, first-time guest on the podcast. I, I mean, yes. I'm, I believe, not I believe, I know for sure. And I'm so excited to finally have her. Christy, it says here on Zoom, Christina. Should we go with Christy or Christina? I use both, sort of interchangeably. Okay. So, <laughs> Yes, I saw that on your IMDb. On all of the backstage stuff, I'm Christina. So maybe we'll, we should use that, I guess. Okay, great. Okay, yeah, yeah, that makes it more official. Christina Kleppinger, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing in 2021? I'm great. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. Um, I'm I'm great. I, you know, we're in a new year and hopefully seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. 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 It's a strange. Yeah. It's a strange time, as we've been saying. Um, Absolutely. So what is your what is your title? And you were just saying what aspects of your job have changed since the pandemic? What do you normally do and what do you do now? <laughs> Absolutely. So I am Backstage's California-based casting specialist. And that means that I work with the casting directors and filmmakers and production companies that use the site to find talent. I also do some outreach to film schools and filmmaker organizations and new casting directors Mm -hmm. to introduce them to the site. In many cases, do some education on the process of casting for film students who have never done that before. Uh, demystify the process a little bit and encourage them to work with professional actors. Amazing. That's really my goal. (laughs) Is it safe to say, to use the term casting expert to apply to you? Ooh, that feels like a big title, but (laughs) sure, I'll take it. I am focused specifically on California and the LA market and the, the weirdness that is filmmaking and content creation in LA. Yes, which is so cool. See, this is why it's. I think you're uh, the first backstage team member, like backstage LA team member, to be featured on the podcast. And so, I mean, how has it been in the last year? What is the state of filmmaking in LA? What is this strange new world? (laughs) Yeah, it definitely. I think strange new world really captures it (laughs) Uh, because so much of LA has been centered for years on meeting people in person and getting coffee and networking in that way, that has completely gone away this year, obviously. Uh, But what I find really inspiring about living in Los Angeles and interesting about LA in particular is the variety of ways people have found to fill that gap. Sure. 
you know, virtual coffees mm. or um, Zoom meetups. There's been a really great response from LA filmmaker organizations to find ways to keep filmmakers connected to each other. Amazing. Yeah. And so that's been really great. And so much of my job has sort of rolled along as usual. It's just everything has moved to Zoom as opposed to meeting in people in person or sure. um, attending events. Even film schools were doing virtual casting seminars for film students and still getting that bit of education into their film school experience, but hmm. doing it in a way that's obviously much safer right now. Totally. And it, it's all it's all so perfectly timed with Backstage's remote auditioning updates. Absolutely. Um, which I know you're you're yeah, you're you're guiding people through it. And the fact that you can do that remotely is is the magic of technology. You are no less busy than you usually are, right? N no. In fact, I in many <laughs> ways this year has been more busy because the virtualness of it has very much even the playing field. Film schools that are too far mm. away for me to usually attend. That's cool. Are now in the same place with schools that are down the street from my house. Yeah. So we've been able to actually do more outreach to film students, more outreach to film organizations because we're not tied to a specific location. That is really great. Yeah, amazing. Um, and what else takes up your time? I know you are also a filmmaker. I am a filmmaker. I write and direct with my sister. Uh, yeah. We are a writing directing team. We've been also very busy this year. Um, we have a Amazing. feature that's in development that we did a COVID shoot. We shot a proof of concept short for the feature wow. and got to experience that COVID filmmaking Paranoia. that everyone has been kind of finding their way through. So yes. yeah, very busy year in many respects, but all good things, all good things. Amazing. Um, can I ask you the standard, like the the podcast, the most podcasty question of like, because I think I think filmmaker listeners would really value your your insight. Like, what is your advice for specifically mm. the filmmakers, those behind the camera, the more creator types? How do you navigate? How do they navigate today? Like, what are what are your tips? Yeah, I think my advice for filmmakers is the same as I would ever give, and that's that mm -hmm. filmmaking is a team sport. And mm -hmm. you cannot do filmmaking alone. And it's important to not just network with people to build your career, but instead to find a group of people that you want on your team. Mm. And, and having that really great creative input from other people is going to strengthen your filmmaking. Even if you consider yourself like a very auteur, distinctive style filmmaker, gotcha. there's nothing better than having a team of people around you that mm. are adding to that and giving creative input and shaping this thing that we're all kind of making together. Mm -hmm. So keeping that in mind, I think is incredibly important for filmmakers, especially right now when networking is much harder yeah. to do it intentionally with the idea that you're not just finding people who will further your career, but finding people who can add to that creative team. Mm. That's beautifully said. That is, Thank that's you. wonderful. And I guess, okay, so I guess speaking of, um, today's podcast guest listeners, the voice you heard at the beginning of this episode was Delroy Lindo. Um, uh. What Christina. a dream of a performer. Right? Okay. You, I mean, you are familiar with all of the guests that we feature on this podcast, I know. Because you you are, are well-watched. You're, you're a consumer of all of <laughs> this like entertainment. I like that well-watched. Yeah. Um, but Delroy, I mean, he's been working a long time. And so people might know him from lots of different things. But of course, the main focus of this interview was The Five Bloods, um, which you saw, which you loved. I saw and I loved and I think... His performance in particular in that film, that was a film filled with incredible performances. Yes. And somehow he still has so much presence in every scene, in every line, even 
scenes where he's not doing a lot of speaking. He's so present yeah. and so involved in the energy on screen. What an incredible performer. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he kind of sets the tone. It's a really, really intense performance. <laughs> it is. It is. And I think one of my favorite things about him as an actor is that he takes roles that are very different from each other. Oh, and yeah. this is a role that is not something we've necessarily gotten to see him do in the past. And yep. it's such a strong, present performance. Yeah. And for li- maybe for listeners who haven't seen it, I would I would recommend that you go see it. But um he play uh, Delroy Lindo plays Paul, who is a PTSD uh, ridden veteran of the Vietnam War, who is a Trump supporter, and he wears a "Make America Great Again" hat and doesn't like uh, foreigners, right? And um, has a lot of trauma, just a lot of uh, ghosts. At one point, he even says, "I see ghosts," and yes. like you just said, that is a completely different role from, for example, his role as Adrian Bozeman in The Good Fight. On which is similarly an incredible role for him but yes it could not be on different ends of the spectrum totally and he's done stage he's been working for decades um and this interview is great i I think any actor who's ever experienced a dry spell perhaps during a deadly pandemic um would get a lot out of this interview because uh delroy has lots to say about that um christina thank you so much for introducing yourself to the podcast and for inter- helping me introduce Delroy, I think we are going to hear. We are. I'm hoping to hear from you again. I'm Absolutely, to get you on again. I would come back anytime. Hello, in the envelope, listener. If you are a theater lover looking to learn more about Broadway, may I suggest checking out our friends over at The Ensemblist. Their podcast takes you inside the theater with Broadway performers from Hades Town to Hamilton. In their candid 20-minute episodes, the Ensembles takes on diversity, Broadway history, and so, so much more. Seriously, check it out. It is terrific. Search for The Ensemblist on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. With a stage and screen career spanning decades, Delroy Lindo is once again in the awards conversation for his work in last year's Spike Lee Vietnam War film, The Five Bloods. Born in London and trained as an actor in San Francisco and New York City, Delroy first worked with Spike in Malcolm X, Crooklyn, and Clockers, and has starred on Broadway and in The Cider House Rules, Get Shorty, The Chicago Code, and now the CBS All Access drama, The Good Fight. Here is the masterful Delroy Lindo. It must be so crazy to be promoting a movie during all of this. Thank you so much for taking the time also. It's not. It's not actually crazy to be promoting a movie. It is. Okay. No, no, I'm not being facetious. It's, it's. It, obviously the the um the length of time and the, the academy season the award season is so much longer yeah but yeah. um because this is a piece of work that i am so mm. profoundly proud of mm-hmm. and i'm 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 really 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 happy to support but okay. i also feel fortunate to be mm. able to support it because what this is in the final analysis is it's my work. It's all of our work. And I'm, I'm extraordinarily fortunate to be able to work yeah. at this point, Wonderful. to engage work. 
So no, it's not weird, and it's it's a it's a, it's it's um it's a saving grace. Mm-hmm. Nice, yeah. yeah. Um, the movie is incredible. You are so your performance is so amazing. I'm so excited to talk to you because I'm such a fan. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And <clears throat> we are backstage, so we are all about the acting craft and career advice, and we are all about what you just said. That these messages of like. Uh, the honor of, of talking about the work and of really immersing yourself in the craft and the knowledge that being able to work is a, is a privilege. <laughs> it's it been said on this podcast before. Yeah. It is a privilege. And that's, that's Beautiful. a great word. That's a, um, an apt word. Mm-hmm. And I, I will start if this is, you know, actor oriented mm-hmm. by saying that, um, and I've said it before, but um, this is to have experiences like this, mm to be involved with a film such as the five bloods is exactly why I went to acting school. Mm. It, it doesn't get any, it doesn't get too much better than this. Absolutely. Yeah. Particularly in relationship to the more unsavory aspects of the business. Okay. Um, and the, and the, and the disappointments that one must. Absolutely inevitably face and negotiate in context of all of that mm-hmm. when the work comes around in, 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 in such a rewarding way. And, I, and I've had a few of them. Mm-hmm. This is the most recent and it's, and it's extraordinarily re- rewarding oh, yeah. when you can be affirmed and gratified creatively. Mm-hmm. It puts into a different kind of a context, the, the slings and the arrows that one mm. inevitably must negotiate yes. in any, in any uh, ongoing career. Yeah, it's all, it's all worth it. I mean, that's the thing at Backstage, we love hearing about the highs, but also the lows. It is important also to talk about how, re- to talk realistically about the industry, the slings and arrows. I love that. It is. Um, do you, did you ever use Backstage maybe for casting notices? Are you familiar with us? Yeah. Okay. Cause you were uh, in New York. Yeah. Um, uh, backstage. And I believe the other paper was show business. Is yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, man. In the, in the, in the late seventies and the, in the early eighties, that was the, that, that was, really was cool. the, um, I don't want to say the Bible, but it was the, it was the, <laughs> um, it was the go-to great go-to, um, weekly periodical that one yep. went to. And I will say this backstage magazine, even though it was not a magazine, but backstage was mm-hmm. directly responsible for getting me through a particularly, particularly difficult time that I was having. Really? Yes. And I will tell you exactly what it was. Please I saw an ad in backstage. I had not worked for a number of months, which as any actor knows is like, you you think it's a death sentence. You think you're never going to work again. It is very, very traumatic. Yeah. And I saw an ad in backstage for uh, a company was looking for a janitor. And I saw this ad in backstage. Also when I made, this is a true story, man. 
I called, I was in the equity lounge in New York City on 46th Street, West 46th Street. I uh-huh. was at a phone. This is way before cell phones. Of course. Pay huh. phone in the equity lounge. And I called this number and I said, I saw you are looking for a, a custodian or a janitor because he was asking me about myself, et cetera. Hmm. And a few minutes into the conversation, he said, excuse me, I have to ask you a question. I said, sure. He said, you are, you're very articulate. You speak very well. Why are you applying for this job? And I said, okay, I'm an actor. And and, and telling back then, you know, you kind of didn't tell people you were an actor because if you, if you told them you were an actor, they would say, well, what happens when you get an audition? What happens when you get an acting job? Oh, sure. But I said to this gentleman, okay, I'm an actor. I'll be really honest with you. I'm an actor. I haven't worked in a long time. I need a job. I don't have any money. Yeah. And he said to me, okay, um, there's actually another job. There's another opening that's, um, that's available. And that is to be a counselor. It turned out that the company that I was calling, the Young Adult Institute, YAI, hmm. and they were off of they were off of Lexington Avenue, around right around Gramercy Park. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, come on down. I want to meet you. There's another job. Cool. So I went down uh, a few days later. Um, and uh, he said the job is uh, to be a, a counselor with our population. Um, the Young Adult Institute, they, I don't, I don't want to, be politically incorrect. They, their constituents were adults with developmental Mm. issues. And I was trained so that I would know how to give meds. Oh, wow. And, um, I worked seven to 10, 7 AM to 10 AM each Mm. morning at the YAI. When you mentioned backstage, that was, that's the backstage story that I have. Um, yeah. And that sounds like a good um, day job, like a good survival gig in terms of um, you're, you're learning skills, you're interacting with people, you're having to listen and really be attuned to other people, right? I, it was all of those things. Yeah. It, it saved me almost literally because it put some money in my pocket. It didn't pay fantastic, but it would put mm-hmm. money in my pocket so that I could fundamentally pay my bills. And I would say to you, that is directly because of backstage and And making that call magazine. Very cool. That's so, it's such a fast, that's such a different take on the like backstage success story. Cause those day jobs are, as you say, like those day jobs are really important just for the basics of being an actor. Was this, this was after training at what point in the career without delving into your full life story. I know you were born in the UK, you moved to Canada and then you moved to the U S yes. I, it, this was at a point when I had moved back to New York from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, I studied at a place called the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I moved back to New York. As I said, I was living uptown. I was living in Harlem. Um, when I moved to New York, moved, moved to New York, I, I got a job inside of six weeks. I got a um, understudy. I was hired to understudy. At the cool. public theater. Oh, wow. New York Shakespeare Festival. Oh, sweet. I've been in New York about six weeks. 
uh, and I was hired to understudy on a play called Spell Number Seven by mm-hmm. Entezaki Shange. Shange. Uh, Entezaki had done a huge, she's had a huge hit with a play called For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. Mm-hmm. And then she did a, her follow-up play, I believe, was called The Photograph or The Photographer. And then she followed that with Spell Number Seven. Cool. In that company was uh, Sam Samuel Jackson, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Latanya Richardson, his uh-huh. wife. Denzel had just left the company. I believe he had been wow. uh, in the company. Um, Avery Brooks had been in that company. So I was hired to understudy. <clears throat> Very cool. I Very left. Cool. I left and I went and did a gig in Denver. I was mm-hmm. the one of the inaugural members of the Denver Center Theater Company. Uh, I came back to New York. I think I did an off-off-Broadway play, a Lorraine Hansberry play called Les Blancs. Wonderful mm-hmm. play. But then the bottom dropped out and I had no work. And that's when I, when I went to work. Totally. Right. And that's what happens. That's the classic New York struggling actor is yeah. some regional gigs and some dry spells. It, it happens. This was a dry spell. Yeah. Um, what was So what was the initial goal? Because it sounds like the goal has has changed a lot. Like you, you wanted to focus on theater, but you had done some film. What was, first of all, like the childhood, did you have, were you bit by the acting bug as a kid? Yeah, I was actually. Um, I have told the story numerous times. Um, Mm -hmm. I was, I got the bug when I was in the nativity play when I was five or six years old in my elementary school and I played one of the Kings. That is when I believe the seed was planted. Cool. And in speaking to various of your colleagues uh, over the years, it had, I believe that the basis of that seed being planted Hmm. did not have to do with um, me being up in front of people performing. It had to do with the way that I was affirmed by the teacher who was directing Hmm. the Christmas play. Gotcha. Uh, that's what that was. And that's when the, that's when the, that's when the bug was planted, I believe. Yeah. By the educator rather than yeah. by the attention from the audience, which yes. is, yeah. Exactly. And the attention from the audience should be the byproduct and not the goal of a life on stage or a life. In um, the I, that's, that's <laughs> what I believe that yeah. may be very, very 20th century um, kind of an ethos uh, it may even be a mid 20th century ethos mm. because whenever I speak with younger actors, contemporary younger actors, mm-hmm. and they say to me, Mr. Leno, Mr. Leno, I want to be an actor. And one of the first questions that I ask them is why, why do you want to act? Okay. And depending on what their response is, will influence how I respond to their response. Gotcha. Yeah. Because I became an actor uh, because I thought theater could change the world, right? Mm. I, I, I came on the heels of um, the black arts movement of the, of the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started working, you know, in the late 70s. And um, I came to New York. I wanted to be a theater actor. 
hmm. um, because I thought theater could change the world. So that That's... influenced mm-hmm. my decision to come back to New York and, and to start my career in New York as opposed to going to Los Angeles or some somewhere. Sure. Sure. It was sort of a, it was an either or kind of situation, screen or stage, and you oh, were more drawn so. to the stage. For, for yeah. me, it was an either or. Ab- absolutely. Very, very much. Yeah. Yes. And so what about the training? Um, I'd love to know, because of course we, we love talking about the actual craft and your actual, you know, your creation of characters is what you learned in school and then your years of New York theater. Like how has your process changed? Are there things you do every time for preparing yes. for a role? Yes, there are things I do every time. Absolutely. And they are things, it's an ethic that I have, that I established for myself in the theater. Mm-hmm. I have taken that, I've maintained that ethic to my film work gotcha. with modifications. Okay. But the point for me of going to New York and starting my career in the theater is because I had this notion, I had this idea that I I wanted to be challenged by playing different kinds of parts. Hmm. And that is what happened for me as a result of um, working in the regional theater. Definitely. Being a New York-based actor, all of the theaters, all of the regional theaters would come to New York to audition mm-hmm. the New York actors. Yeah. And so, you know, the, 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 the bulk of my career, yes, I played off-Broadway a couple times. Um, I played off-off-Broadway once, and I played Broadway twice. Mm-hmm. But the bulk of my theater um, work was in the regional theater. Cool. And that's kind of where I made my bones. That's what, all of it, all of it together. Mm-hmm. But the fact of working in the regional theater uh, meant that I was being challenged to do different kinds of parts. Yes. Okay. I'd like to believe that that has ultimately led to um, a certain kind of versatility. Yes. Right. uh, For working for the camera. And I I would be remiss. I would be remiss if I did not say that around the middle of the 1980s, I became aware that working in the theater exclusively was not going to be, uh, it was not going to work for me Mm. because creatively it worked, absolutely. But in terms of making a living, making a decent living, um, I needed to work in television and or film. Yeah. And I had some extremely fortuitous things happened to me working mm-hmm. in the theater. I had a period between 1986 and 1988 when I played Walter Lee Younger in productions of A Raisin in the Sun. Mm-hmm. And I played Harold Loomis in productions of August Wilson's brilliant, brilliant play, Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Mm-hmm. Between 1986 and 1988, I played Walter Lee twice, and I played Harold Loomis five times. Five times. Five times. And (laughs) fifth time being the Broadway production. Right. And in that two-year period, 
is when I grew exponentially mm -hmm. as an actor. Interesting. As a result of being challenged mm -hmm. to play these big, contemporary, yeah. classical parts, mm -hmm. Walter Lee Younger and Harold Loomis. Mm -hmm. That's when I developed the, the, um, uh, the habit of always doing a physical and the vocal warm-up. Oh, cool. Always. Oh, okay. And I continue to do, even though working for the camera, mm -hmm. uh, is, it's a different process, but I always do some kind of physical and vocal warm-up. Amazing. <clears throat> when I'm working for the camera. But they are habits. That's a work ethic yep. that I developed, particularly in that, in that two-year period Right. Um, working on A Raisin in the Sun and working on Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Mm -hmm. The preparation that, that was needed to meet those parts. Sure. Um, I've carried with me into my work for the camera. Because I think uh, you're, you're right that theater and maybe in particular regional theater, the variety of roles is what yeah. requires you to up that ethic. Yeah. And so then, and it was late 80s that the film work did start to, to begin. It, it, it did. And it, you adjusted that technique for the screen, basically. That's, that's exactly right. right. What was particularly fortuitous for me is that I've since found out that opening night of Joe Turner's Come and Gone on Broadway mm -hmm. Spike Lee was in the audience. Okay, I was going to ask. Yeah, okay. That's where he first saw me, apparently. Very cool. Very cool. And so, you know, that led a few few years later to him offering me this work in his films. Mm -hmm. And the first one, the first collaboration was Crooklyn? No. The first collaboration oh. was Malcolm X. Oh, Malcolm X was before Crooklyn. But is it true that um, you were almost involved in Do the Right Thing or you had, you had met him around then? Um, ish, ish, ish. The, the story is that he wanted me to, um, I, I received a call saying, uh, Spike wants you to come in and audition for Do the Right Thing. And I, I looked at the, uh, I don't know if I read the whole script, mm -hmm. uh, or I looked at the sides. I think it may have been that I looked at the sides, the scenes that, um, that the character was in that he wanted me to come in and audition for. And I decided that it wasn't speaking to me. Okay. That may sound like a really arrogant thing no. to say. I mean, you, who the hell are you? <laughs> now I'm being a Spike Lee film. What the, you know, WTF, <laughs> what is wrong with you? But at the time that he wanted me to come in an audition, I had, I think, done a couple of films. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we had, I'd gone to Australia to do oh, wow. uh, a film called The Blood of Heroes, which is my first time being away on a film set for an extended cool. period of time. I was there for three months, three and a half months. I came back to New York. I then went to Kenya to do a film called um, Mountains of the Moon. So I had done these films and it's not like I had huge parts in the films, but mm -hmm. I had been sufficiently involved in those films and, and mm -hmm. the notion of being away on set, um, on location rather. Um, when Spike wanted me to come in and audition for Do the Right Thing, 
It just didn't feel like there was enough meat on the bones of the part mm. that I wanted me to audition for. So I graciously sure. declined. Um, and so then, so I, I, you mentioned auditions, and of course we love hearing about audition advice. Is all of the acting technique, character prep stuff, does that also apply to auditions? Do you approach those differently? Do you have an audition philosophy? I, I, I guess I have an audition philosophy. Um, um, I will tell you that one of the most valuable books about auditioning oh, sure. is a book called Audition by a man named Michael Shirtliff. Okay. And I read that book and that was incredibly instructive. Interesting. Incredibly That's a great tip. Yeah. Um, so that was incredibly instructive. That's a great and what I understood, you know, retrospectively, what I really understood, it's not just about your talent as an actor. Mm. There's a whole, how you comport yourself, how you interact, interact with the people in the room, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> how you deal with, how one deals with one's nervousness. Yeah. Um, um, so that was very instructive. Excellent. Um, education edifying, mm -hmm. educational, about how to approach an audition. I, I will say to you this, for all the actors out there, mm -hmm. I got to a point in my early career where I, I, I felt that I didn't audition well. I don't audition well. Okay. Um, sometimes it was, it, was, it was good, it was decent. <laughs> I just felt, I, I don't audition well. Um, I guess I'm saying that because um, for all of the actors out there who, who may feel that about themselves. Sure. Um, oh yeah. You're not as, you know, we are all always much more self-critical mm -hmm. than we need to be, than it's helpful. And oftentimes when you may feel you have blown an audition, that may not be what the people in the room saw, you know? Yeah. So you have, have faith in yourself. Certainly there are auditions that are better than others for sure. Of course. Mm -hmm. But, um, it's my experience, even though I did have this feeling, I don't audition well. Hmm. I got cast frequently enough <clears throat> that, um, I, I kind of sort of felt like I was onto something. Yeah. Ah, Preparation, 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 and then mm -hmm. preparation again. <laughs> Walk into that room, have a sense of what you want to do, and be prepared. Absolutely. Particularly if you're only going to get one shot. If you're only right. going to get one shot of three minutes. Yes. Yeah. Three minutes to give a full impression. Yeah, yeah, man. Preparation, 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 preparation. That's excellent. Do you have, like, can you remember a worst audition horror story? We ask everyone for, for their, you know, nightmare. Do you have yeah. like a go-to? Yes, I, I can. I, <laughs> I, I can. That same period when I was working at the YAI in... The dry spell, sure. Dry spell. Yeah. Um, so look, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a horror story, but then I want to couple that with a affirming story. Good. Yes, please. The horror story is 
that same period, that, that dry spell, I was in the desert. I was just, um, and I got an audition for a theater in Florida. I do not remember the name of the theater, but it was in Florida. Hmm. I went and I did the audition and I actually did a really good audition. I did a wonderful audition mm-hmm. and I was offered the part. Now, because of my agent at the time mm-hmm. and pre-cell phones, oh. there was some mix-up between my agent at the time telling me that I had gotten the part, my mm-hmm. receiving that information, and getting back to him saying, yes, I want to do the part. Oh. There was a mix up. There was a lag time. And by the time I got back to him, now probably it was actually probably a really short lag time. And in retrospect, maybe the theater had somebody else they wanted for the part anyhow. I do not know. By the time I got back to my agent saying, yes, I will do the part, the theater had pulled the offer. They had rescinded the offer. Yikes. And to say I was devastated after all of these months not working. Yeah. Say I was devastated does not begin to describe <laughs> how traumatic. That it was. is traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was walking down Broadway and I was been on the payphone with my agent. He said, no, they pulled the offer and there was nothing that could be done. They had offered it to somebody else who had accepted the part. I was out. I was done. That is the worst. Yeah. The worst. But um, maybe a month or so later, Hmm. I went in and I auditioned for a play called Bosman and Lena, a play by Athol Fugard Mm -hmm. at the Milwaukee Repertory Theater. And I got that part. Okay. Um, It was a longer spell of time. I believe the job was 10 weeks. Had I been in Florida doing that part, I would not have been in New York and therefore available to go on audition for the production of Boseman Land. So it worked out. It all works out. Yeah. Um, Again, that is affirming. (laughs) I would that is affirming. Um, That's actually not the story. That's not the affirming story I wanted to tell. But what what I will say is that um, um, God actors. It can be traumatic. It can be crazy making. It, it can Absolutely. drive you to despair. But never give up on yourselves. Mm. Don't give up on yourselves. <laughs> you made that commitment. And I know, I know that's a very, very uh, elementary and kind of lame sounding no. thing to say. <laughs> but it is so true. Because the fact, fact of the matter is you are going to hear the word No. Yeah. More, far more far more often than you hear the word yes we want yeah. you you're going to hear no we don't want you yeah. um but don't give up on yourselves if you have made the commitment for instance to train to go to acting school mm-hmm. and go to whatever city it may be whether it be new york or los angeles or seattle or chicago any of these other cities that have a thriving theater um scene Mm-hmm. If you've made that commitment to, and that investment in yourselves to train and then to place yourself into an environment where you have opportunities to audition, right. um, if you've made that commitment, you are 
I don't know, halfway there already, just in terms sure. of the investment that you've made in yourself. Mm-hmm. You've made that, you didn't just uh, wake up one morning and say, oh, I want to be an actor. You've made an investment in yourself. If you have done that and you've gotten yourself that far along, don't let anybody tell you no. Don't be dissuaded by the trauma of being told no. Because right. at some point you will be told yes, mm. just as I was. Yeah. I'm not working for months. I I get this offer that is then rescinded. Mm-hmm. And I get another offer a month or so later. Yeah. And for me, it worked out. The affirming story that I wanted to tell you very quickly is that during that same period, mm. that fallow period, that profoundly fallow period of not working, I'm working at the YAI. I enrolled at NYU. I took, I, I took a couple of summer courses at NYU. Oh, graduate cool. courses at NYU. Uh, and one of my classes was a performance class. Hmm. And at the end of the class, the students in the class, we all had to present something. And I worked on uh, a monologue from a play by Harold Pinter called uh, the Caretaker, wonderful mm-hmm. play. And I worked on a monologue from The Caretaker and I worked on it and I worked on it and I worked on it, but I'm still feeling a certain amount of despair because I'm not working in the theater, but I'm doing this this graduate class at NYU. Sure. I'm working on this monologue. And at a certain point in working on it, I, I wanted to get some feedback mm-hmm. on what I was working on. Somebody, I don't remember who or how, but somebody recommended that I reach out to a man named Earl Hyman. Wonderful actor. Earl is no longer with us. I called Earl Hyman on the phone. Hmm. Mr. Hyman, I'm an actor. I'm not working right now, but I'm working on a monologue. Would you be prepared to just look at what what I've done and, and just give me some feedback? He said, yes, come to my apartment. And I showed him what I had been working on. I, sh- I, I did my monologue for Earl. Wow. And Earl Hyman said to me, young man, I know it's hard right now. You haven't worked for all of these months, but based on what I just saw, he said, young man, you have nothing to worry about. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's Earl, beautiful. Especially in that moment. There's an addendum to that story. In 1981, 1982, I had been hired to understudy on Broadway, a play called Master Harold and the Boys. I understudied Danny Glover. Mm. Um, at a certain point, I went. I, I took over the part for the last month. Cool. Of the New York run on Broadway. After the performance, one particular performance, one evening, there's a knock on my dressing room door. I open the door and her Earl Hyman is standing there and he says, Oh my God. I told you. Oh my gosh. Affirmations. 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 Yes. I'm not saying that I didn't have bumps in my career after that point. Sure. I did. Yeah. But there are these moments that I can identify yeah. where I was being sufficiently affirmed 
so that I yes. could continue, I could continue trying to forge my career mm -hmm. in New York. As yeah. Actor. Yeah. It goes back to what you were saying about being initially inspired by the, by the educator. You need the, you need the mentors to be affirming your path. That's yeah. What we all need. We all, we all, we all need those things. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know the, 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 for me, anyhow, signs were there. My experience, my experience with Earl, that was a sign for me. Yeah. Um, walking out of, of, of an audition um, that I did for a TV show back in the eighties, I walked out of an audition where I'd really done a wonderful audition, but I knew I was not going to get the part because I didn't have the right look. Hmm. And I'm walking down sixth Avenue and a cab driver I'm, I'm, I'm stopped at the light. I'm standing waiting for the light to change. And I, I think he was a cab driver. He was a person in a car and he stopped and he said to me, Hey man, um, I had done an episode of this thing on TV called a man called Hawk that Avery oh. Brooks used to do. And I had done an episode of Hawk and, um, I stopped. I just come out of this audition. I knew I wasn't going to get the part. I know I had done a really good audition. I was not going to get the part and I didn't get the part, mm. but I'm standing at the light. This person in a car pulls up and says, Hey man, um, I just saw your, your uh, episode of Hawk. You're great, man. You're a great actor. <laughs> I don't know what, but just keep doing what you're doing, man. Oh, wow. He drove off. So, um, so kind, kind, and, and in context of just having done a really good audition for, for work that I knew I was not going to get, it yeah. was profoundly affirming. Yeah. It's like you and were ready for the universe to give that to you in that the moment. The universe gave that to me. Yeah. The universe gave that to me. That's exactly That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I, I do think that your work and your mentorship, you are doing that for young actors today. You are doing that for early career actors. I for sure. So. Even just by by turning in the performances that you that you turn in. And in fact, I have to ask you about the five bloods before, before I let you go. Mm -hmm. um, how it's such an, uh, congratulations on all of your awards, your critics choice nomination, all of this for, for this role. How is it different from other um, Spike Lee collaborations? I imagine that you learned a lot from this one. This seems like a very special one, like you were saying earlier. This is special, extraordinarily special, but similar to other experiences that I've had with Spike in as much as Spike has always exhibited a trust in me as an actor, mm. Malcolm X, Crooklyn, Clockers, and that was very evident on Five Bloods. Um, he has always trusted me mm. and shown confidence in me that I can deliver the work that needs to be delivered. So from that standpoint, working on the first three films with him back in the 1990s and working on bloods in, in 2019 mm -hmm. seamless. Cool. He continued to exhibit that trust. Um, yes, the film was special, very much so. Um, but each of the films that I worked on with Spike has been special in its own right. Sure. Having said that, I will say that, um, Bloods has taken on a life of its own on some level mm. and, it, and it belongs in the firmament. It has yeah. its own special place. Yeah, but already, yeah. 
I, I will say that the consistency of the trust that Spike has shown in me, the consistency of the faith that he's that he has in me has always been present. That yeah. does, and that was very much present on Bloods. Hmm. Um, I always say, I always say, it doesn't mean we don't have disagreements. We do, and we did. Hmm. But the important thing was, we got, we resolved those differences. Spike apologized to me when he's um, said something or done something the way he's wrong. He says, man, I'm, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Mm. And that means the world because it means one can then pick oneself up and um, continue mm. in the work inside. Yeah, the world. that's a true collaboration. It sounds like you guys picked up right where you left off after, yeah, after many that's years. That's, that's wonderful. Um, talk to me about Paul. I'm especially, I'm especially, um, interested in the idea of like, you mentioned this vocal physical warm up technique yeah. for something like that incredible uncut straight to camera monologue. I imagine that the physical work of that, that felt like theater. It felt like in watching the movie that felt like theater. So did you treat that as a Shakespearean monologue on a stage rather than filming in the filming in the jungle? No, no, I, I, I treated it like I would, I treat any other monologue in as much as in, in, in that monologue, I'm, I'm expressing a truth as I see it. Uh -huh. And the camera is the person mm. I, that I am expressing the truth to. So cool. Many years ago, somebody said, I don't remember who, somebody said uh, in the theater, when you have a monologue, you are speaking to the person or persons that you feel has the answer. Okay. And in... Like you're asking a question almost. You're asking a question or, or uttering a truth mm. in order to get an answer or yeah. to get illuminate something. something for the person, quote unquote, that you're speaking to. Sure. sure and in sure. that monologue, the person I was speaking to happened to be a camera. Yeah. But um, I'm still speaking from my truth in order to illuminate a moment mm -hmm. for myself and for the person I'm speaking to. So I didn't treat it any differently than, 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 than here's a moment in this narrative where I'm speaking my truth from my place of truth. Mm. Wonderful. And did you think, do you think about outside in versus inside out? I mean, the physicality of your, you're covered in sweat, you're filming in a real jungle. Um, you also, was it exhausting? All of, which, all of which is helpful. All of which is helpful. All of which is helpful. Okay. Hell yeah. Cause it's serving the narrative. It's yeah. serving the reality that, that Paul is, yeah. that I as Paul, the Paul is um, mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of. Yeah. So even the hat, even the MAGA hat, helps you. <laughs> yes. And you say you as Paul and you say Paul, is it a separate person or no. is it you? Is it both? It's not a separate person. Okay. I am Paul. Wonderful. I am Paul. Um, I'm saying when you hear me speak outside of the parameters of Paul, it's just me taking a half a step back for the purposes of this, half of this interview, but I am Definitely. Paul. I love I that. Paul and Paul is me. I love that. Yeah. Totally. And we spoke to um, Jonathan Majors on this podcast. It's mm -hmm. also so wonderful in the film. And I'm so, I'm, we're always so fascinated to hear about that idea of, I love that you say it's a half step back, not a full step, 
It's a half step back to talk about this person. So you lived as Paul. You sunk yourself into Paul. I I, I sunk myself in as as deeply as I was able. And then how do you extricate yourself, especially for for something that intense? That I believe is is part of the technical Hmm. skill. No, that's the, that's, that's a technical component of being, um, that's a technical demand, a technical component that one has to meet as an actor in order to maintain control of oneself as an actor and to stay in control of one's instrument, even when, even when one is seeming to be out of control. It's, it's the reason why, you know, in theater and in film, if you have a fight scene, for instance, you're not really fighting. That fight is choreographed mm-hmm. and it's choreographed to the absolute nth degree. Mm-hmm. And the more violent the fight is, the more necessary for it to be yeah. choreographed in such a way that nobody really gets, gets hurt. Yeah. And that has to do with control, control. and being in possession of oneself, uh, being in possession of one's instrument. The more trauma that one is having to exhibit in service of the work, mm-hmm. you go there. But the more you go there, you experience that technically. Mm-hmm. Um, you experience that, but the more necessary it is yes. when the director says cut, when the workday is over, the more necessary to leave it there yeah. in the workspace. Yeah. And does that take practice? Yes. Yeah. It, yes, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Because otherwise, actors will just carry that intense trauma with them. I imagine, you know, after delivering that monologue, if you don't go through the process of kind of decompressing, you've experience trauma yourself rather than as Paul. That's, that's, that's not inaccurate. I know that's a double (laughs) negative. That's not inaccurate. Um, But it necessitates, maybe it's a little, you know, schizoid, but it, but I guess in the final analysis, what I'm saying is it is necessary to have that point of demarcation between oneself yeah. and what uh, a character may be going through experiencing. Yeah. yeah. And the more intense, the more violent, the more um, extreme, mm-hmm. the more necessary to have that point of demarcation. I'm remembering um, years ago, uh, I, th- I don't, I don't want to misspeak. It was a production of, um, a David Mamet play, American Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And the actor, the young actor who was playing the junkie in the production actually OD'd in his hotel room. Oh, no. Yeah. I don't remember the actor's name, um, but I do remember that he was playing a drug addict in the production and he actually overdosed in yeah. his hotel room. That is a really apt example to bring up, I think. It is a really apt example and, yeah. and um, an apt and tragic example. Yeah. Find 
ways of, it does take practice, but yeah. it, it's as much a part of the actor's responsibility to demarcate, yeah. to have that line of separation between the work and one's life. Yeah. And to be sufficiently controlled as an acting instrument. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's easy to do because it's not sometimes no. depending on what the work is, depending on what the part is, but that's the job. Mm. That's the job. And that's the responsibility of the actor. Yeah. It does depend on the part too. It, it kind of goes back to what you're saying about you sensed early on, you wanted to take on a wide variety of roles so that you knew how to adapt your technique to different circumstances. Right. Rather than like, I'm going to go, always play a cop on TV or I'm always going to go play a sidekick character or some such. You were like, I want to play as many characters as I can in order to adapt myself to whatever I need to. Yeah. I want to be able, I want to have range. I want to be able to, I want to be able to encompass Mm. different human beings. Mm. So I got to let you go. Delroy, thank you so much. This is so nice. Um, you have given, I really do think you've given actor listeners of this podcast so much valuable, valuable advice. Do you have any, any final words of wisdom, anything we missed? Yeah. First of all, thank you. Obviously, I've been speaking from my own experience. And it, it's, it's hopefully of value to any actors, aspiring actors out there. Oh, yeah. And I would say, say gather as much information from as many sources as you can, and then filter it through your own reality. Mm -hmm. Because in some instances, what has worked for me may not work for you. So it's critical that as much data as you acquire, Mm -hmm. you then filter it through your, the reality of yourself, your experience. And, And hopefully that is when you'll, you will become the most authentic actor that you can become for yourselves. Yeah. And that's the goal. Yep. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. What a perfect note to end on. Delroy, thank you so much. I'm I'm such a fan. And now it's time to hear from Christine McKenna-Torella, our backstage casting insider. I will let her take it away. Hi guys, Christine McKenna-Torella here. Delroy Lindo, oh, where to start? I love his acting. I love seeing his work. He's incredibly talented and a seasoned actor who's done kind of everything from regional to Broadway to TV, film, fantastic. And I thought it could be a surprise to some actors on the outside looking in to learn that Delroy has gone through work dry spells and challenging times in his career. And he's taken on side gigs to see him through. When you're pursuing a career in the arts, the reality is you're going to need a survival job. Ideally, something that is akin to the career you want. When I started freelancing and casting, I was a part-time manager of Joe's Pub, which is an absolutely magical cabaret and music venue. It's connected to the Public Theatre in New York. It was fast-paced and high turnaround, and a lot of the times it was stressful. But my colleagues were artists and creatives, their lifelong friends, and interacting and seeing new artists on stage nightly was incredibly rewarding. 
In fact, knowing downtown artists before everyone else in the business was one of my calling cards and casting for a long time. And it was thanks to that job. In other words, my survival job fed my creative side as well as helping pay the bills. Sometimes like Delroy, you're going to take on a survival job that keep the bills paid and the lights on, and it ends up being more rewarding than you could have imagined. Like that counsellor position that he took that had flexible work hours, he created a exercise program that he used as a warm-up for stage performances. Whatever your survival job ends up being, you have to have a planned schedule for your acting career. Because essentially, you have two careers at once. The one that is out of necessity, that pays the bills, and the second that you do because it's your passion and you love it. It involves applying and auditioning for a lot of jobs before you book your first one. Backstage has a very comprehensive guide to survival jobs because, of course, it is the lifeline of actors. So here are some of the top tips. So find a job that is flexible or that you can create your own schedule around your auditions. And something that is tolerable, right? You do not want to dread going to work. It's not gonna it's not gonna feel good to always hate going to that survival job. A few common ideas, childcare, temp work, dog walking, real estate broker, tour guide. Think long term about skills you want to sharpen that can help you stay in the creative work even while you audition. Do you want to learn more about writing or editing? headshot photography, creating websites for actors, working with kids, working in admin for a creative company. We have a section on Backstage called Gigs, which is where you can find all the non-acting jobs listed, just like Delroy found his janitor slash counselor job. Check that out. On to the casting highlights of this week. There is a company in San Francisco looking for talent for shooting a promotional video for a bike tour company. You must be comfortable on a bike and local to the area. Details on the site. We have a major casting for children, for child talent on the site at the moment. The person has to love to dance, be a triple threat. So casting the next phenom for a major network series. And the production states, the most prominent momager and dance teacher in the nation is seeking triple threats age 7 to 13 to create the world's next big phenomenon. That's exciting. I have a few ideas about who I think that is, but I don't know. So spread the word if you know any kids that love to dance, love to sing, would love that opportunity. And I'm very excited to learn that the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is shooting the fourth season. They're looking for some featured talent. This is based in New York. They have very good, uh, strict COVID guidelines that you can read through on our site. And if you're interested in learning more about that casting opportunity, head over to Backstage. As always, there are hundreds of castings on Backstage.com for every region, for every type of actor. Head over to check out more. Break a leg in all your upcoming auditions and have a beautiful week. In the Envelope is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City and Soundbox LA, Mark Grouse Studios, and Buzzies in Los Angeles. Thanks as always to our producer extraordinaire, Jamie Muffet, 
and to the team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage by using the code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. That's right, 100% free. For more exclusive content, join us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Would you like us to interview next? Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another glimpse in the envelope.